overrated. How many believe Jesus is the best? Never overrated, underrated, maybe underappreciated, but he is the best. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. How many want to learn how to live for the best? We got to live the best for the best. Hallelujah. Those who are tracking with my progress three weeks ago, I popped my Achilles tendon playing basketball with my son. Then uh, this past week chose the surgery, uh, got it restored. And then they said about two days, the nerve blocker will start to go away. So get ready for the pain. And guess when the nerve blocker started to go away? It was last night. So pray for me. I'm just on a little bit of pain medication, but here's the thing. I had Rudy ready for a word, and um, I, man, you have to understand this. It's, it's something that I would love to have heard him preach, but I felt like I had to be obedient to what God had me to do. How many believe that if you're not down, you're not out? Amen. And so I'm doing this out of obedience, not because I didn't think uh, Rudy had a great word. What were you going to preach on, Rudy, if I couldn't make it? Amen. Well, maybe I'll tap on some of that today and join his Bible study. Maybe you'll share that there. But uh, one of my testimonies from this uh, time of, of operation and all of these things is that I've seen that God can give me a lot to do even though I don't move around a whole lot. So I'm a busybody, those who know me, not in a bad way, but I'm always moving, doing different things. But my kids can attest to it, man. I've been busy around the house doing things, writing my fictional book. I've written 20 non-fictional books that you guys can see back there. They're also free online. But I'm writing my first uh, fiction, and it's about, uh, I won't go into too much of the details, but it's basically telling the story about what it would be like in the, in the future if a, if a community became Christianized and they lived according to the, the things of God, but then there was an uprising among the youth who wanted to go back to the way uh, it was before all of that, so which would be like our time. Everybody go, ah. Oh. So it gets you thinking, like, what would you do? You know, because they want to go back to it now. They heard about these things, these sins and all of that, they wanted in their culture again, and yet there's people there at that time who had gone through all of that and, and seen God show up, and uh, the, the, the little bit of the sci-fi behind it or a little bit of the, uh, the interesting side is that you get to see the demons and the angels, you know, so like they're interacting with each other, and uh, one, of, one of the main characters is called Azakor, and he's a fallen demon, and he used to be with Michael. See, I'm going too far into this, and, and uh, he's, he's doing all this stuff behind the scenes, and it's, it's not going to be a long book, but it's just to get people to think about the spiritual realm that's out there, you know, and how if we're not careful, you know, we can forget what God has given us because as I was sharing in the first service, Christendom, not talking about the, uh, the Roman Empire, not talking about what the Church of England did. When I say Christendom, I mean it in the best sense. I mean what Christians have done for the world is second to none. And yet now in our culture, we're actually giving it up. We're giving up our universities and these were established by Christians. And just in the first service I had up there, do we still have the slide? Do we have that? Just go and put it up there for me, please. Uh, oh, I deleted it. You might have to take a minute to pull it back up there. But I talk about how slavery was ended by the Christians. The woman's suffrage was led by the Christians. Hospitals invented by Christians. The, the idea of it, equality among the different races. Do you know that in the Roman Empire, they didn't look at the world that way. If you were of a certain race, of a different uh, culture, you could look down in, on, on others. And it wasn't just the Romans. It was everybody. You know, if you were in the Persian world, you know, if anybody ever seen 300, anybody? That meant 
thought he was a god. And if you weren't with them, you were going to get crushed. You had no rights. And it was Christians that literally wrote in our Bible, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ. That was revolutionary. The Egyptians weren't talking like that. The Greeks weren't talking like that. The Romans weren't. And yet now in our culture, we take that for, uh, for granted. Here's about the women's suffrage. Yeah, there's uh, Harriet Tubman leading the Underground Railroad. Do you know that a person said about her that they had never met anybody that heard more from God because her strategies of leading the slaves free were coming in dreams and visions. Did they teach you that in school? Probably not. Keep going up. Booker T. Washington. Notice what Booker T. Washington said here. As a rule, a person should get into the habit of reading his Bible. You never read in history of any great man whose influence has been lasting who has not been a Bible reader. Did you hear that from the BLM movement? Have you heard that? No, they, they want to do a social work, but they don't want to do it the way it's been done in the past. They want to uproot that. They think they have a better way, and we'll just keep working our way backwards. Uh, William Wilberforce, did you know about him? He was one of the first ones to start preaching against slavery in the European culture. This led to us having a civil war, but it started with him. And then if you go one up above this, a lot of times people talk about the Christians, and when they came you know, on the Mayflower and how they mistreated the Native Americans, how many have heard that before? But you never heard about Roger Williams. Roger Williams was actually expelled, look at this, exiled from, he was banished from Salem, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, because he stood up against the way they were treating the Native Americans. He said we should be paying them for their land, we should be kind to them, and he actually ended up being a go-between between the colonizers and the Native Americans. They loved him, and he was a preacher of the gospel. But once again, we don't hear about those things in our culture anymore more, do we? All we hear is what Christianity did bad over here, or these white people in the South did this, and all of these like broad brushes, but we don't understand where did the hospital come from? Where did these different services come from? And then since I'm here, let me just share this. Uh, Tom Holland, in his book, not the Spider-Man Tom Holland, but the, uh, I know how many just thought I was talking about Spider-Man. Spider-Man said... Uh, the scholar Tom Holland in his book, Dominion, brother, maybe just uh, give them a screenshot of that. He is a secularist. He is not a Christian. These are the eight things he writes about in his book that Christianity brought to the world that people don't give it credit for anymore. Here they are quickly, and I have his book as well. As well. The idea of equality, the development of human rights, the foundation of modern mor moral values, the concept of secularism. A lot of times you hear, we're not in a church church, state, we're in a secular state. How many have heard that before? The actual idea of that came from Christians. Think about that. Christians, like Roger Williams, he was a Baptist, and you got to remember, Dansbury Baptist wrote the letter to Thomas Jefferson that was responded to by him. We want separation of church and state. Well, do you know why Dansbury, Dansbury Baptist wrote him that? Is because guys like Roger Williams did not want the church and state in that country, in America. They wanted freedom. So it was Christians pushing for what you would now call secularism. Everybody Everybody go, ah, come on, say, ah, you're learning something. Don't just go to the history channel. Come on, I'm a doctor by God's grace. I can teach you too, right? But not just the Bible, I can teach you history. And, and thank you, this is Tom Holland, and that's, that, that's who I'm talking about. This is a secularist, a non-Christian, okay? The concept of secularism, uh, the transformation of slavery. Yeah, you saw people in the American South at one time owning slaves, but that wasn't because of Christianity. That was despite Christianity. Everybody say there's a difference. Amen. You got to understand this. When the 
Muslim owns a slave, that's because of Islam. So, the, the, see, the world has it all twisted. This is the way they look at it. Whenever somebody does something bad, they say, well, let's not call them by their religion. Let's just say that's an extremist. But that's not actually true to everybody's religion. There are certain religious principles that are not extreme to the religion. They're actually native to the religion. So if you look at Muhammad, Muhammad owned, bought, and traded slaves. So when Muslims do the same thing, they're not doing that in spite of Muhammad. They're doing that because of Muhammad. Are you guys tracking with me? And I have a book that I've written on Islam by God's grace, and I'm rewriting it now with much more details because Islam is going to be here to the end. Even some of uh, the ones that I follow believe the Antichrist will come from Islam. This is a whole other discussion. And the Mahdi, what they believe is going to be their 12th imam, is actually the prediction of the Antichrist, which is a whole other sermon series that I may be getting into soon about the end times and how it corresponds with Islam. So just be ready for that. But going back to what I was saying here, when Christians in the South owned slaves, that was outside of Jesus. Did Jesus own slaves? Did Jesus teach his disciples to own slaves? Did Jesus have sex slaves? No. So when a Christian does that, they do that despite Jesus, despite Jesus. Do you get that? But if Muhammad, and you're taking me at my word now, but you can study for yourself in the Hadith and his, his biographies, okay, Ibn Ashaq in his biography keeps all of the details there, uh, talks about Muhammad owning, trading, and sexualizing the slaves, especially the females that he had. So when you see uh, like what they would call ISIS or Boko Haram going to Nigeria, taking the women there, and uh, this also happened in Pakistan when they come to the Christians and the, the Hindu minorities and they bring them into their families, they then say that the women have converted. Now this is a problem because now they've brought in this woman in and they say that she's converted and now she can be a wife. So this is what they do with the children. Go put that up there. Uh, children taken captive in Pakistan uh, as wives. When they do this, now there's a problem because if the young lady says, well, I'm no longer a Muslim, now she's under the, uh, the apostasy law because they will say, we heard you can confess the shahada. We heard you confess that Muhammad's a prophet, and that's why you married our son, and now you're saying you're not a Muslim. We can now kill you under apostasy. So she's stuck, right, in that way. And then if she says, well, I never wanted to marry him, now they're going to say, well, a Muslim woman who's been given in marriage shouldn't claim a divorce unless you have certain such, such, and such reasons. So they capture her into that state, but it's no different than sex slavery. And if you remember, when we had one of our brothers from Pakistan that was over here just a few uh, months ago, uh, when uh, Brother Joshua West was preaching, I began to share this. And I said, is this still going on in the Punjabi province and Lahore and different places? And he said, yes, it's still going on. They take advantage of us this way. So once again, that's what Muhammad did. That's what Islam did. So if Christianity does that, so let's say you see a Christian take slaves, a Christian do these kinds of things. Does that now mean that that's a part of Christianity? No, that just means somebody's abusing the name of Jesus. Listen to what I'm saying. Pakistan, girls taken as wives. Uh, please have that there. When, when you think about Christianity, what does Jesus say? He came to set the captives free. He, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to preach freedom to the prisoner. Can I hear an amen to that? Okay, so having said all of that, let me just go through this real quick again. Uh, Christianity brought equality. It brought human rights. It brought more modern values. This is from a secularist, okay? It brought secularism. It uh, brought about the transformation of slavery. How about this? It brought the development of science and reason. If I began to teach you about the, uh, the fathers of science from, from Francis Bacon to the rest of them, do you know what they're going to say was their foundation? The Christian worldview. Because the Christian worldview taught them that if God said in the beginning was the heavens and the earth, and now if we're made in the image of God, we can understand the heavens and the earth. How many believe that? I said, how many believe that? 
Amen. Let's see right here. Yes, every year dozens of girls, mostly teenagers from Hindu community, and it's also Christians, and the southern prophets of Cindy fall victims to this practice. And there it is. And it's happening among the Christians as well. You can research that. Science came from Christians. And, and just imagine this right now. How we have given up our science to the world because we think we don't belong there. All you Christians, you just believe in faith. You don't belong where the scientists do. No, we need to go back into science. I thank God for children who want to be missionaries and, and uh, pastors, and we need to encourage the ministry. But how many know we need to see all of these branches of knowledge to be occupied by Christians again? Christian scientists, Christian teachers, Christian professors. The next thing, the idea of progress. In all of these nations, most of them, and especially during the time before Christianity, progress was seen as conquering. Think of the Egyptians, progress, building the pyramids, conquering, bringing in slaves uh, for, for their own dominion, okay? But for the sake of the world, the idea of sending forth ambassadors was totally foreign to them. How many have ever heard of the concept as a Christian missionary? Yes, do you know that that is a Christian ideal? I'm not talking about bombing a place in the Middle East and trying to set up democracy like the war in Iraq. Th those things we can all agree are, are wrong. But I'm talking about when Christianity began to grow, they sent out missionaries. You have to even remember, Judaism did not send out missionaries. Their call was to develop a nation and to be intrinsic among themselves. Christianity had an outward call. Did you know that at that time of Christianity growing, that the most strongest nation outside of Rome were the Vikings? You ever heard of the Vikings? Well, well, guess how the Vikings became Christian? Not by the sword, but by conversion through missionaries. The missionaries converted them. Now, a lot of times you hear, oh, it was by force and all of that. Eventually, yes, these things happened, and it was done wrong, and other Christians corrected them. But when you see the early expanse of Christianity, put Thomas going to India, please. And there are still today in India uh, uh, people who go back to St. Thomas, one of the 12 disciples. You remember Doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas went to India and established a Christian community that is still here today after 2,000 years. Can I hear an amen to that? How about Ethiopia? being Christianized. No war in Ethiopia, but how many remember in the Bible? The Ethiopian eunuch. And he goes back and he establishes the Ethiopian church. And brother, uh, uh, Pastor Bertel shared with me the other day, he said, brother, this is not a mere coincidence. The last time you talked about the Ethiopian church, we had an Ethiopian doctor visiting. Did you know him? We have a sister from Ethiopia. You didn't even know. So I don't know if she invited him. So she doesn't even, we have another Ethiopian sister here. But he said, that is unbelievable. I go to these American churches. They don't know anything about Ethiopia. And here I'm sitting here as an Ethiopian doctor and I hear you talk about our church. And then there, there you see, the uh, Apostle Thomas going there to the people of India and Kerala. How many have heard of Kerala from some of my Southeast Asian friends? And it's still a popular Christian community dating back to St. Thomas. No war in India. Don't think of the British imperialists. Don't think of just the Roman Catholic conquistadors in Latin America. Understand Christianity existed hundreds and thousands of years before that. The idea of the British imperialism, where is that? 1700s, 1600s, 1700s. What about the, uh, the, the, the Middle Ages and all of that? You know, 1400s, 1500s. We were Christians way before that. So during that blight in our history, and I do agree there was a blight there, who was there to correct it? It was the reformers. Anybody ever hear of the Reformation? And so Christianity came. And then the last idea, how about this? The shaping of art. You think of the David statue. I may have heard of the David statue. He's, he's naked, you know. Uh, not all nudity is bad if you're looking at it from that point of view. Don't, don't try to get away with it and call, you know, looking at pornography and saying it's just art, okay? 
But understanding the beauty of the human body, understanding the, the heavens and Galileo and all this. And I know oftentimes we think, well, didn't the church fight them? Yes, there wasn't always agreement. Trust me, I'm not trying to say everything was perfect in Christianity. But what Christianity did has to be appreciated because now we are at a time, and I, and I said all this from our book, that if we don't appreciate it, we're going to lose all of our principles to national, uh, to national ideas, to things that have already been done that have destroyed civilizations. Think about, and put this up please, the death toll of atheism over the last hundred years. Death toll of atheism over the last hundred years. Do you know that what they thought they would get was a utopia in both China and in Russia when they removed the belief of God from their cultures? And do you know that both of those cultures ended up killing a hundred million of their own people? Because of atheistic regimes. Russia was once a Christian place. And though China wasn't Christian, it had Christian roots and it had other roots of, you know, uh, Eastern philosophy and so forth. But when the communists came in, they, did, they had their revolution. And there's a precious Christian sister that I follow on Facebook that's old enough to remember when the communist revolution happened in China. And how that death toll resulted in 100 million people. And the same thing in Russia. When you hear about the Russian gulags and the torture and all of that, that was before the World War started popping off. That was just in those nations alone, let alone when Germany turned its back on God. Remember, we talked about the Reformation turning away from the Roman Catholic Church. Germany was one of the first nations to do that. They had some of the most smartest scientists. They had some of the best universities. And when they turned away from God, who did they fall for? Hitler. And look at what came out of that. So post-Christian is not a joke, my friends. When you turn your back on God as a nation, somebody say, God have mercy. The Bible says the nation that forgets God will be turned into hell. And here you see 101 years of atheistic rule, 100 million dead, and it's actually 250 million. That's just showing China. But I've done the math. I've gone through different charts. So I just want you to be excited for the opportunities. What does this mean for us? That we have a chance to bring Christianity to this culture right now. We were made to be bright, shining lights in times of darkness. Pastor, there's not a lot of Christians around. Okay, that sounds like the time when the Bible was written. Now it's time to be one. Do you need a whole bunch of lights on your block where all the lights are at? Or do you go to the part that's dark and turn on the lights? You go to where it's dark. You don't go to where all the lights are at. This is our time. Well, pastor, there's a lot of different uh, worldviews now. Pastor, it's not just Christian anymore. There's a lot of different religions. You know, like in my community, Southeast Asian, like I said, we have the Pakistanis and those that are relating to Islam. And then my neighbors are Hindu and so forth. And you know what? Pastor, I don't know what to do with this. Well, welcome to the Bible times where they lived among the nations, where Christians were the minority. And they had to speak to idolaters and people who prayed to other gods. And, and others say now, well, what about my children? And, and we do homeschool, and it's a great thing to do so. But what about my children in these public schools? Do you remember Daniel? He was in Babylon. How many remember Daniel in Babylon? And yet God kept him and his friends there righteous and holy. So I know God can keep your children righteous and holy. Amen? Amen. Somebody said that was a sermon before the sermon. All right, you ready for the message? All right, somebody say sinless. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. As we turn here, I want to show you what I talked about last week. Uh, let's show them the chart first, brothers. You guys are doing great in the back. Let's, let's look at this chart. This is what we talked about last week. I want to expand on this. And uh, I, I came up with it while we were preaching, and then I ended up writing it down. It should be on the desktop. That this idea of being sinless scares many Christians because what they think I'm saying is that you're just going to be perfect and not have any mistakes in your life. So this is how I want you to understand this. Though Christians are sinless, that's in their nature, they may not always live sinless due to giving in to the flesh. However, over time, they will sin less. 
By being led of the Spirit. Wow. Y'all getting this? It's a play on words. It is because I use sinless in three different ways. But if you track with the scriptures, you'll see how it makes sense. Let's just review right here. Though Christians are sinless in their nature. Let's start here instead of in 1 John, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We have to believe that. But from there, that doesn't mean we'll be without sin. It just means we're going to have an opportunity to be without sin, and that should be our desire. But if we should sin, God will forgive us. Now notice this, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become what? That we might become what? The righteousness of God. Well, let me ask you something. How much sin is in the righteousness of God? None. Well, if you're the righteousness of God, how much sin is in you? All right. Now you're getting there. Amen. Let's go back to that chart, that phrase there. So we're sinless in our nature. If someone could give me a bottled water, I'll probably need it, and it will also serve as a great example. Please and thank you. Remember I showed you this example last week, that that bottle of water is pure, isn't it? And that's its nature. The water's meant to be pure. Now, sad today, we don't have a lot of that fresh water around here. It has to be filtered through all of our systems. But that's the way you're supposed to look at water. That it's meant to be pure, especially uh, fresh water. Well, that fresh water, as it's purified, thank you, sir, is always pure until something contaminates it. So right now, it's sealed. Somebody say it's sealed. Do you know that you're sealed by the Holy Spirit? Go to Ephesians right now, chapter 1. Just as I'm hearing this downloaded by the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So not only have you been saved and born again by the Holy Spirit, you've also been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. How many are saved today? Amen. When you believed, you were marked in him with a what? With a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, talk about being in India. You know what they warned me about? They said, don't buy every bottle of water, Pastor. Make sure that it's what? Sealed, because sometimes they'll reuse the water. And that, that could be dangerous if they're just putting it out of anywhere. I could get sick. I don't have the antibodies. That's not my, my cultural drinking water. So you always got to check the what? The seal. The Bible says, as you were saved, you were sealed in the Holy Ghost. So there's no sin that can get in unless you let it in. You're sinless by default. This is your default. A sin to you should be as obvious as something going wrong that if I took off the top, unsealed it, and put in some contaminant. Now it's obvious, right? I'm not talking about something you can't see. I'm just saying obvious, you know. This is how sin should be. It should be obvious. Now, what do we do with something that has been contaminated? Do we throw it out and say, oh, man, I'm never going to use this? Or do we renew, recycle? Come on, somebody. What does the Bible talk about Christians doing? Renewing. Go to Romans chapter one, verse one, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, be renewed in your mind. Being able to test and approve that which is God's will, his perfect and pleasing will. So how do we do this? You start off by offering your body as a living sacrifice to God. Then at that point of sacrifice, you remain obedient. But what happens if you're disobedient as that sacrifice? You're going to get up off that altar and get yourself in some trouble. How many have gotten yourself into trouble after being a Christian? Let's, oh, y'all going to be quiet here? 
Come on, let's be honest. I know we got our kids and our friends and our family, but let's be honest. How many have gotten in some trouble after being a Christian? Well, what did you do? You took your body off the living sacrifice. You, you can't be dead and alive. To, you can't be dead to sin and alive to sin at the same time. If you are dead to sin, you're a dead man walking and alive to Christ. If you give in to sin, now you're being alive to the sin and you're ignoring Christ. And so as a Christian, though we don't go back and forth from spiritual death to spiritual life just by sinning, we do so in our mind. So now watch this as a difference because sometimes people say, well, pastor, if we're born again as a Christian and this is our default, and if we then sin and become contaminated by the standard of judgment to the book of Genesis, one sin caused the spiritual life to go from Adam and Eve. How many remember that? And then they'll say, well, pastor, that must mean if I sin as a Christian, I must die another spiritual death. But that's not true. In the covenant of Christianity through Jesus Christ, a sin does not spiritually, uh, uh, that contamination, that sin does not lead to a spiritual death. What leads to the spiritual death is then forsaking Christ and leaving what he has once brought you into. Are you guys tracking with me? See, Adam and Eve, under the covenant that they were under, the covenant of innocence, one transgression caused them instantly to die spiritually. They knew that they died. And the Bible says that when you eat, Jesus speaking to them says, you shall surely die. How many have heard that before? Surely die. But you know what that is in Hebrew? That's a double upon the word death. In death, you shall die. Have I taught you this before? I think I have. Some of you might remember. In dying, you shall die. Or in death, you shall die. So what was the first death that they had? Spiritual in their heart. And because they had spiritual death, now what's the next death that they're going to face? Physical death. Go back and study it in the Hebrew. I'm not an expert, but I trust them. That in death you shall, sh in death you shall die. In dying you will be dead. And that is why it says in our English version, you shall surely die. That emphasis is giving a double sense of the word death there. And that's why we understand death in two ways, spiritually and physically. And so from that point on, sin was pretty serious. Of course, it's serious for us now, but they had no covenant to remain in spiritual life. As a matter of fact, I don't believe anyone pre-Christ was ever regenerated as in John chapter 3, verse 3. We'll go to Romans 12 in just a moment, but we'll build up there. Go to John 3, verse 3. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, what does he say to him? You must be what? Born again. For if you are not born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. Well, if this was something that they were to have at their time. Why doesn't he understand it? Why doesn't he go, oh, yeah, you're right, born again. Yeah, that, that thing. Yeah, I'm supposed to have that. No, he doesn't know anything about it. What Jesus is now doing is revealing the, the, the prophecies that were spoken of earlier in places like Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart, and I will take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How many have heard that before? Anybody? Okay, because that's, let's just go to Ezekiel 23. We're backing this thing up. Somebody say back it up. Amen. We're just continuing going back, 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 just so I can build this foundation. Go to Ezekiel chapter 23. Ezekiel chapter 23, as we have learned in the book of Hebrews, is a promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 23, you shall receive a new heart, or is, is it Ezekiel 23? I believe that it is. Uh, Nancy, look that up for me or someone here. I will give you a new heart. I don't see it in Ezekiel 23. That's actually, oh, it's Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 23 is the curse, and Ezekiel 33 is the blessing. Let's see. I thought that, oh, Ezekiel 33 is the watchman. Someone look it up for me. I'll give you a new heart. 36. Thank you, my brother. Let's give it up for uh, Javi back there. Come on, guys. Give it up for him. Thank you. 
I just went through the book of Ezekiel. Let's put it together. Everybody watch this. So I went through these with you. 23 is the curse. Ezekiel 33 is the promise of the watchman to get them out of the curse. And then Ezekiel 33 is the blessing now coming upon to take place of the curse. Can I hear an amen to that? So it's 23, 33, 36. Now look at chapter 36 of Ezekiel and look at the promise that he gives them. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your land. Look at verse 25. I will sprinkle you with clean what? Clean water on you. Do you remember in John chapter 3 where he says you must be born of the water and of the spirit? That's that water right there. Now, some people have said that's baptism. Baptism does not save you. It's a symbol of salvation. But the water is the washing of the word. It's the promises of God coming through the Holy Spirit. That's what it is right here. It says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new what? A new heart. Come on, somebody. And put a new what? Spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful, careful to keep all my laws. Now go to John 3.3. 3. Unless a man is born again. They cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Does Nicodemus say, oh, I already got that, or I heard about that, or so-and-so prophet had that. I need that again. I had it once. I lost it. No. What does he say? He goes, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? How can somebody be old and now be born again? Surely they can't enter into the, uh, their mother's womb a second time. And how many are thankful for that? Because how many know that would be messy and hurtful? Amen. All the women said, amen. Now notice what Jesus says. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of what? Water and the what? Spirit. Now just hold there. Go to Ephesians chapter 5 so you can get what that water is because Ezekiel said you're going to be washed in that water. It's not baptismal water. We hear exactly what that washing is. When the husbands are said to care for their wives, they're to look at Jesus and how he cares for the church. So look at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Hallelujah. So there you go, husbands. You're supposed to give your wives baths. Praise God. Come on, let's keep it PG. But the kind of bath that's most important, you can have the romantic ones, but the most important one, husbands, is to wash your wives with the word of God speaking the word over them. You are a mother of Zion. You are blessed and highly favored. You're a Proverbs 31 woman. Bless them, love them, and that washes away any emotional trauma that they're going through throughout their day. It washes away the stress. It gives them the peace of God. How many women want a man of God like that? Amen. So go back to John 3. You must be born of the spirit and of water. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So you shouldn't be surprised that I'm telling you to be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You can't tell it where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So now everybody watch this. Adam and Eve had the perfect spirit. They sin. They die. Now they're separated from God spiritually and eventually have physical death. Jesus now comes to give us a new covenant that allows us to go back to what they had. He is the second Adam, and now he gives us a new spirit. But when we sin as Christians, do we die spiritually like Adam and Eve did? No, go back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 says how sin will be dealt with in the Christian's life. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, thank you, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's metamorphosized, metamorpho in the Greek, where we get the idea of caterpillar to butterfly. By the what of your mind? The renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, what is good, pleasing. And what kind of will? Jacked up will? Half perfect, half imperfect will? No, you'll know his perfect will. So now going back to our phrase. Let's go back to it. Listen, you are sinless in Christ today. The nature that you have has been changed, and it's guarded and sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you do sin, you are not going back to spiritual death. You need to then be renewed. So now let's go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, I write this to you, that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. So that's how it's dealt with. Now go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, just a few verses above. This is how we deal with it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and do what? Purify us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. So what is the state of the believer? Sinless. Well, Pastor Joe, I sinned last night. Be forgiven, renewed, purified, sealed, sinless. Default. Now, some people say, well, he's working on me. He's working on me. If you never come back to default, you're doing something wrong. This is how you come back after every forgiveness, every opportunity that you've had to repent. This is how you come back. Some people look at their spiritual life as a progress bar, that they started off in Christianity 1% holy. And now after some years and some prayer, boop, 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 look at me. I'm 4% holy now, praise God, you know. And they hope oh, I sinned a little bit. Go back down to 3%. You, you guys get what I'm saying? And so they're like that progress bar, you know, when the apple or the, uh, you know, the windows goes bad, you know, you see this thing spinning or something. That's not Christianity. Christianity is bing, boom, downloaded 100%. Fully made in the image of God. New creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Let's go there quickly. Whoever is in Christ is a what? New creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's what we are in Christ. Put it up there so they can see it, please. 2 Corinthians 5.17 comes before that verse that we read. We're in the righteousness of Christ. It promises us that the new creation is the gift of the believer today. The new creation is where? Right here. Somebody say here. 2 Corinthians 5.17, my brother. Thank you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation is coming. It will one day at resurrection. No, it has what? Come. The old is still here somewhere. No, the old is what? Gone. The new is where? Here. So how does a Christian live? The Christian lives in the new. And when they're not new, they get renewed. Some people think renew is the process of being made new, and they never reach it. And so they're that progress bar. One day I'll be new. One day I'll be new. No, no. You're new at Christianity, and the only time you need to be renewed is when you mess that up to go back to your default. See, that will change the way you look at your sins. Some of you think you're the little engine that could, and you're going to eventually reach it, and maybe right then at death, the trumpet's going to sound, bing, downloaded, you go to heaven, he's going to go, good job, you did it, you made it to 100% Christian download, and that's the exact opposite. 
how you're supposed to look at it is the day you got saved. Bing, bong, oh, hallelujah. I'm like you today, Jesus. I've been made a new creation. You are in me and I have your righteousness. Thank you. It is finished. Hallelujah. It is done. Glory to God. And that will put a pep in your step. Because now sin doesn't look like a slave master that has to beat you up and drag you around all over the place. When sin comes around, you go, hold up, hold up. That's that old stuff. I rebuke you in Jesus' name. I'm new in Christ. I don't have to go down this road again with you. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Get me out of here. Hallelujah. Not today, Satan. See, that, that's a different way of looking at it. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's the merry-go-round of your sin. Oh, Lord, please forgive me. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I messed up again. I want to do better. Okay, I'm doing better, but I don't really feel like, oh, I messed up again. Oh, God, please forgive me. That's not the Christianity. Christianity is going from glory to glory to glory, not around and around and around. And when you, when you believe it, you'll live like it. When you say, I'm the righteousness of God, that will help you live like the righteousness of God. If you go around saying all the time, I'm just a sinner, how do you think you're going to want to live? As a sinner. The Bible says, as a man thinketh, so is he. Let me just show this to you. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Do you know as Jesus is, so are you in this world? I said, do you know that? Amen. The Bible says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Bible said, be holy for he is holy. And then look at 1 John chapter 4. Look at what 1 John chapter 4 says, talking about God's love being made complete in us. Start in verse 13. This is how we know we live in him as he in us. He has given us his what? His spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Remember, if you're saved, you're saved. I love what uh, Leonard Ravenhill would say to people when they would say, I'm saved. He would go, you know, saved from what? Because <laughs> you're not acting like you're saved from a bad attitude. You're not acting like you've been saved from your sin. What are you really saved from? Because last time I checked, God's a good Savior. He knows how to save you from your stinking thinking. He knows how to save you from sin. Amen? So next time you see somebody say, well, I'm saved, I'm saved. Ask them, what are you saved from? You should be able to say, I'm saved from my past. I'm saved from my evil. I'm saved from my attitude. Hallelujah. I'm saved from all the things that used to draw me in. I'm saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. So he's our Savior, sent by the Father. Anyone who acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And remember, God's not coming into a dirty vessel. That temple had to be kept clean. You're the temple of the Lord now. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Everybody go, oh. He loves me. Amen. He loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, I, I, I put it together one day. I think I was with you guys here. I've been serving the Lord almost 30 years. I think we came up with whatever it was, 100,000 hours I've spent with God in study. I have a doctorate by God's grace. You know, I've uh, traveled and preached. And uh, you remember I shared this with you. I feel like I only have a thimble full knowledge of the love of God. Because the Bible says, who knows the width, who knows the breadth, who knows the height, who knows the depth of the love of God? It's incomprehensible. And I don't say that just as a little preacher colloquialism. I'm telling you yesterday, leg up, you know, going through what I'm going through. My brother understands. And we put on some worship music. And, and, and I looked at Bethany. Did you see her, the, tear, the tears coming down? Because I think she caught me. I don't like to cry too much in front of them. You know, I got to show them strong dad. But we had on this worship song. And my hands just went up as we started giving God glory and praise. And the tears came down as the glory came down. And I realized in that moment, oh, I'm just un poquito in the Espiritu Santo. Just 
It's just a niño. I'm just so small to the things of God. And they asked this one theologian, oh, he was more, way more brilliant than me, any of my friends. And they said to him, after your years of study, he knows all the languages. He knows so much of the history. What is the thing you can pass on to us? And he said, the greatest revelation that I've learned after all my years, my whole life of studying, is that Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. You know, sometimes we think about all the bad that we've done, and we don't understand. He already knows that. And he loves us still. Sometimes in Christianity, we try so hard to impress him, and we forget that he loved us when we were at our worst. You don't have to try to earn his love today. It's the opposite. Just receive the love. When you and I receive the love, we'll do better. Trust me, God wants us to get out of our junk and our funk and get all that stuff out the trunk. You got the bars there? Come on. He wants to get the junk out the trunk and all the funk. But listen, it doesn't start with us trying to win a soccer game for him because he doesn't love us as that old thing, you know, that old saying goes, you know, that the dad only loves his kid when he wins the game. No, he loves us even when we lost the game. And he's wanting us to know that, that he loves us. That's, it. That's his default. His default is love. His default is grace. And what is hell? Because we do have to put this in there. Some of my friends who do great at preaching this first half don't do so much of the second half, but I have to be a full gospel preacher. And what is hell is the rejection of God's love. If you didn't want his love, it's only what's left is his wrath. If you didn't want to spend eternity with him, the only, what's only left? Separation from him. So as C.S. Lewis said, hell's locked from the inside, not the outside. It's the rebellious and the stubborn. I'm not going. Okay, you don't have to come. Stay there then. Now, I do believe it's a sentence and they have to live with it, but wouldn't it be something that we even see that even in hell they refuse to leave? C.S. Lewis wrote a book about this called The Great Divorce, and it talks about sinners in hell, and it's actually a little bit different than what you would imagine. Oftentimes we think of hell and the screams and the howls, get me out of here, right? But in his book, he twisted it, and he wanted you to think about it from the sense of the rebellion that they had when they were on earth. So he tells the story about a mother who had died and now is in hell and gets to go to heaven to meet her son. And there in heaven, and of course this is fiction, she meets her son and she goes, oh, I'm so glad I'm with you. That was hell. I can't wait to be with you now. This is heaven. Where you are is heaven. Let's go. And the son goes, hold up, mom. We can't just go to heaven like that because they were at the outer gates. We can't just go to heaven like that. You have to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. When Jesus becomes your Lord, the gates open and you can come join us. You can be there. And she goes, well, I'll, I'll do it because I'm your mom and I need to be where you're at. That was the greatest joy of my life. And if that's what I need to do, I'll do it. Jesus is Lord. I'm ready to go. And he goes, no, 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 no. You can't do it like that. You have to do it for your sake. He has to be your Lord. He has to be everything, including me. And then all of a sudden, it's been acted out on YouTube. These are kind of cool little skits that they do. Just the mom and the son. You can watch it. Now she starts to get a little agitated. What do you mean? Greater than me as a mother. Nothing's greater than that. Being a mother is what I am. I wouldn't give that up for anything. And he says, hold on. This is what I'm talking about. God made you a mother. You didn't make yourself a mother. And before you were a mother, you were his creation. You were his daughter. And now in heaven, there are no more mothers. There's only sons and daughters of God. You have to want to be here to be a daughter now. And in his, in his writings, and you can see it in that little skit, she gets mad. Well, if I have to give up being a mother, and if I can't come there to be your mother, then I don't want to go there at all. You see, I wonder if hell is really more like that than what we think of oftentimes. It's really the place of the rebellion. 
The place that where people don't submit their will to God, and even if they could get the chance, they would still reject it because it's not over the things that they're really making it about. It's not over all the problems they've had, though oftentimes they shake their fist at God because of their problems. And it's not really that they're so confused and they can't get the Bible because my children get the Bible. Jesus loves them and died on the cross for them and has a plan for them. This little guy, he's smiling. He gets it. No, what it really was is it wasn't a heart, a head issue. It was a heart issue. Not my will. Uh, not your will, God, but my will. And that's what C.S. Lewis said. On the day of judgment, there will be two kinds of people. Those that God will say, come on in. Because you said, not your will be done, but my will be done. Come on into your reward. And then to, uh, to the others, he will say, it wasn't my will, but it was your will. Depart from me, for I never knew you. I wonder if that's what it was going to be like. Now, going back to this, God is love. Look at it. And we know and rely on this. Somebody say, I'm relying on this, that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, you'll never be like Jesus because nobody's perfect. Is that what it says? Because in this world, you are like who? We are like who? Jesus. I thought nobody was like Jesus. Nobody's perfect. Without Christ, nobody is like Christ. But in Christ, he's now our image. He is now the one we are like. We are stamped with his signet ring and sealed by the Holy Spirit. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in this love. Perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So now do you see the difference between the covenants? Adam and Eve, they sinned, separation, spiritual death, physical death. Now, in the new covenant, when we are born again, we get spiritual life. If we sin, we don't go right back to spiritual death. We get the chance to be renewed through our confession and be purified, being brought back to that default. And as long as we rely on the love of God, there is nothing that can separate us from that love. Amen? And then in this world, we are like Jesus. Man, I want to get some cheers going like, in this world, we are like in this world, we are like, in this world, we are like, Jesus, Jesus, come on, that's who I love, that's who I serve, now let's go back to that slide, please, so in Christ, we are sinless, though we may not always live sinless, where does that problem come? It comes from our inner desires, our flesh. Go to 1 John chapter 2. The Bible already, as we read in first one, if we sin, we can be forgiven. But where do these sins come from? They come from the flesh, and it's all about love or lack thereof. Look at John 2.15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not where? In them. So notice this. Your heart, like this bottle of water, can only be full of one substance at a time. If you are so full on the love of God, you will have no room for the love of this world. See, if I filled this right to the brim, could I fit any more uh, pop in there? No, because it's full of the love of God. 
God commanded us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And guess what, husbands and wives? This does not just apply to us spiritually with God. It also applies to us and with our spouses. If I have my heart full of my love for my wife, do I have any room for anybody else? No, I cannot give my love to a woman at the gym, somebody I see at work, or somebody that's you know, trying to wink at me or do something. I have no room for it because my heart is full of love. Where do affairs come from? They come from a heart that is not full of love. And sometimes spouses will say, well, I'm going through a hard time, so I don't feel my spouse's love anymore, so that gives me permission to go out there and fill it somewhere else. No, it doesn't. You love them even when they don't love you. You see, it's your choice to keep your heart full of love for them. And didn't God do that for us as the perfect husband? Even though we've been adulterous to him, as James has said, we have cheated on him. Israel was continually called a prostitute, a wayward wife, but God said he was faithful to her because it's dependent not upon the other but the person whose heart is full of love. So today, I can have my love for my wife whether she has it for me. Now, there is such things as biblical divorce and separation, and we pray for God's mercy in those times, but this is how happy marriages are done. Well, let's go to this. If my flesh is still with me, and it's going to be a matter of love, then now my daily battle is really not over sin itself. It's really over the love. So C.S. Lewis, who I happen to be talking about today, another quote comes to my mind, is he says, it's not that backsliders or sinners have stopped loving, because sometimes it looks like they don't have the passion they once had for God. No, it's not that they stopped loving, it's just they stopped loving God with all of their heart. So they're still loving something, in other words. They may look lethargic, not every sinner is passionate about their sin, but even there in their liturgy, even in their laziness, they are still loving something now with the fullness of their heart. In other words, there always is going to be a fullness of your heart towards the things of God or towards something else. You're always going to be worshiping something, either God or something else, an idol. And the Bible talks about it like this, that if you're not guarding your heart and loving God with everything, then what comes quickly? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It does not come from the Father, but it comes from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives how long? forever. Thank you. So now notice this today. If you and I are struggling in our faith, it's because now we're struggling in our love with God. It's a love relationship, brothers and sisters. When I tell you that I haven't looked at pornography by God's grace since 96, it's not time to ask me now about my great self-discipline. When I say to you that I haven't sworn or taken the name of the Lord in vain or I haven't gotten a fight or these kind of external things that get hand claps when we testify, right? Well, that's awesome. You don't get drunk anymore and do all of that. That's not because I had some great self-discipline. It was because I had the love of God fill me up to where I desired those things no more. The desires of those things lessened as the desire for God increased. So when you see someone going back, as the Bible talks about, and I said I would mention it last week and I didn't, so Lord, uh, forgive me for that, but let's go to uh, 1 Peter. When the Bible says that the dog goes back to their vomit, at the end of 2 Peter, brothers and sisters, it's not that this happened just by accident. This happened because they have stopped following the things of God. I believe it's in 1 Peter or 2 Peter. Look at a dog returning to its vomit. Might be 2 Peter. Just want to be one of those Peters. Everybody look it up today. As a dog returns to its vomit. I thought it was 1 Peter. Is it 2 Peter chapter what, Javi? I mean, you get... Thank you, my brother. Man, this guy needs to get the gift card today. Do we have a gift card to give, Javi? I feel like he's helped me, man. Say it again, brother. Chapter 2 what? 222. 
of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its what? Vomit, a soul that is washed, returns to her what? Her wallowing in the mud. Now notice, let's just back up here just a little bit to verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world, because some people hear me preach like this and they go, well, then if God loves us and we're perfect in his love, well, that must mean we can never backslide and become a sinner again. If we're protected in a different way than Adam and Eve, then we can never go back to spiritual death. And they'll bring up scriptures like the Bible says, no one can take them out of my hand. Life is eternal. How do you have a death come to eternal life and so forth? But what they don't understand is the balance of these scriptures. See, these scriptures now are going to say that you can return back to what you once were. And why is that? Well, let's go back to our example of the pure water bottle. This water now can be put into the toilet, can't it? Can this water go into the toilet right now? Yes. Do you want it to go there? No. As long as it's away from the toilet and in a process renewal, it has nothing to fear about the toilet, right? It's in the bottle and it's sealed. Does everybody get that? But could it go into the toilet? Is that possibility there? Yes, now the Bible says we still maintain that same will. And so it's not that God's life has an expiration date. It's that we have come out of God's life. So think about, as we say, the revelation in him used all throughout the scripture, even in the, the scriptures that we read in 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 5.21, who's ever in Christ is a new creation, and then in Jesus we are the righteousness of God. How many remember that? And that phrase, in him, was there. Well, what happens if you come out of him? You lose all of the blessings that you had in him. So this is where people have to understand. Eternal life is never yours to have as your possession, as something that is intrinsic to you. Eternal life is always borrowed from Jesus. In other words, the only reason why we get it now, maintain it with the resurrection, and continually inhabit it is because God lends it to us. And how many know God's a person of his word? And if he says it will last forever, it will last forever. But how many know something that lasts forever may not last forever for you if you're not in it? If I have to come in forever, if I have to come in everlasting life and remain in it, then that's how I get it. But if I come in, then that means I can also come out. And if you look at the Bible, you see people came out. Judas was one of those disciples. He saw the miracles, he did the things of God, and then he came out. So was Saul. The Bible says he had the Spirit of the Lord on him, he prophesied. But then there was a time the Spirit of the Lord departed him and an evil spirit began to torment him. The Bible says that. Now look at this because it's going to be even clearer here. In, in 2, Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Now, sometimes my friends say, well, they were never really saved to begin with. And true enough, there are false converts. So you will see people profess Christ, and they really won't know Christ, and then they'll go into sin again. That is called a false convert. First John talks about them. It says, they left us because they were never of us. But not every backslider is a false convert. Some actually knew the Lord. So I say to my friends, most of them are Baptists. They believe in once saved, always saved. I say to them, I grant to you those scriptures you bring up to me about false converts, like the one in First John. They weren't of us. They left us. They were never here to begin with. They were just not in their spirit. They were there with their body, but not in their spirit. Okay, I get that. But what do you say about this one? This one says that they knew the Lord Jesus. They knew him as a Savior, Lord and Savior, and they are now entangled again in their sin. A sinner is always entangled in their sin. So how could that make any sense? If, if they say they were never saved, well, then what does it mean again? Can you die again if you're already dead? 
If they're spiritually dead, how do they get entangled again? How do they die again? See, in their worldview, it's always just sinner and saint, and there are some sinners who pretend to be saints. In our worldview, yes, they're sinner and saints, but sinners can go back to be, uh, saints can go back to being sinners. So they're entangled again and watch are overcome. Well, I thought sinners were already overcome. So follow the train of thought here. They are worse off at the begin at the end than they were at the beginning. Well, once again, if they had never lost something that they had, how are they worse off? They never had it. How many know if you had something and you lost it, that's, be- that's worse than never having it? How many know that? I mean, if you had a million dollars and you lose a million dollars, that's worse than never having it, right? Come on. I mean, you'd feel like, oh, I just lost a million dollars. They've lost the best thing. It would have been better. Now, this is where it gets really clear. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Now you understand why we have that term backslider. They turn their back on God and they slide away. Of them, the proverb is true. What we just learned, a dog returning to its vomit and a pig that was washed going back into the mud. How many don't want to do that? How many want to walk forward with Jesus? Amen. Just give me a few moments. I know we're a little bit uh, late because of all of the, the ordination, but let me wrap this up. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. So we are sinless in Christ, but we still can sin. How is that? Well, if we don't love God as we once did, and we start to give into our flesh, and I've talked about these three things before. Lust of the flesh are those things that are the desires of our physical body. The eyes are the things that we want in life that God has not has said that not, not now or not this way. And then the pride of life is I'm just going to do it my way, like Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. I went to a funeral, and they sang that, and they said this was his favorite song, and I was the preacher there, and I had to come up after that, and I said you better make sure you do it God's way. Because you can't just be Frank Sinatra's way. Now, I do appreciate ingenuity. I'm glad that a lot of people have taken their own path in life, so I'm not saying just to be a follower in that way. But how many know you got to follow Jesus first and foremost? So the world will tempt you with these desires. Now, let's go to 1 John 3, 9, because what should be our desire to sin less? And before we go there, just put up the slide quickly, please. And I pray that this message has blessed you as a part two. Though Christians are sinless in their nature, it doesn't mean they're going to live sinless because they can still give in to their flesh. However, and this is what I want to share here in closing, over time, they will sin less. How many believe that? Because they're going to be led by the Spirit. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will what? Continue to do what? Continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and their sister. And so, Daryl, as you come, in closing, the King James, and put it in there, please, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, the King James, doesn't have the word continue in there. And this is what messed up some people who are only reading the King James because it sounded like definite. And it says this in the King James, that whoever is born of God does not commit sin. How many of you know that's pretty scary if you're a Christian that just sinned? Because now you're going to be like, uh-oh, I might be a child of the devil because that's the only version that they had. Why does the NIV have continue sinning? Because actually the verb is a continuous action. The King James is a great version. I still prefer it most of the time, but it's not a perfect version. They had their mistakes. And one of their mistakes is they didn't catch the tense of that verb. 
This verb is not just a one-time action. That's why in the modern English of the NIV, and put it in the ESV, all of our modern versions, do ESV if you can find it there, please, 1 John 3, 9. They're going to put it in that continuous action because the verb is not just, you sinned once and now you're no longer a child of God, you're a child of the devil. And this is what uh, we would kind of argue about in Bible college. What happens if you sin, you know, you're in an you're in argument with your wife and you sin and you die in the car accident? Are you going to hell? You know, this is what Bible college students argue about till three in the morning passing gas, drinking Mountain Dew, you know. Uh, you know, look, look at it here. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Do you, do you see that? That's actually more accurate. Because otherwise, no one's going to heaven by that standard. I mean, literally, it's just like uh, my youth pastor used to say, I don't want to kill you, but just hear me out for a minute. I'm tired of watching you guys come here to the church, get saved on Thursdays. That was our youth night. Live for the devil and then come back. Sometimes I just wish at the altar you could just go meet them right now. Now, that's a little bit harsh, and I don't say that, but my youth pastor used to tease me in our youth group that way. Because in his mind, it was like, oh, dear God, they're saved now. Let them not go to hell, you know. Don't let them mess up. He needed better teaching. He needed better understanding. See, I'm not afraid of you sinning this week. I'm concerned if you make a practice out of it. I'm concerned if you don't know who you are in Christ. Because you could be overcome by it through the gradual numbing of your conscience. And that's what the Bible says in Hebrews, that it was through the, um, the practice of the sin of the Israelite that continually rejected God that led to that severe cutting off at those judgments. And then it says, let's just go there quickly. We have been through this before, but I think it would be good because I see some visitors here, and we just finished our Hebrew series. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter 4, because this is what it looks like, the practice of sin. This is what it looks like. It looks like a hardening of the heart. It's not just a Christian who sins and says, oh God, forgive me. Uh, I want to do better. I should do better. No, this is what it's like. It's like in chapter uh, 3, rather, in chapter 3, verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but be encouraged But encourage one another daily, as long as it's today, so that none of you may be what? Harden that sclerosis. If you've ever heard that medical term, that's the Greek word there. My Greek father-in-law will tell you all the words that we use in English that come from the Greek. Sclerosis, the hardening, the hardening of the heart by what? Sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. So that's what I say to my Baptist brother and sister is that, yes, I'm saved, and I know I'm going to be saved, but I have to hold on to it firmly. Otherwise, my heart over time through sin will be deceived and turn to unbelief. So I was arguing with one uh, precious brother, love him. We were in our backyard, and he goes, I, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I believe there's false converts, and then that's it. The rest of it, God's dealing with us. So I showed him a scripture like this, and he goes, oh, okay, okay. Well, then just tell me. What sin is it that hardens the heart and makes you get out? I just won't do that. Or, you know, just what is it? And I said, it doesn't work like that. You look at Saul, because remember the spirit of the Lord left him. Was it his first disobedience? No, it seems like God is patient with him. Is it the second? No, it's the third. It seems like it's later on in his life that God now says enough is enough. What about Judas? How long was he stealing money for? What about the other backsliders? So this is something that's between you and the Lord. The Lord alone, and you will know if you go to that place where you once used to be like the dog to the vomit. So here's the way I look at it is, never take for granted the conviction of the Spirit. 
There's a difference between the condemnation of your flesh and the devil. You're not good enough. You'll never do it. That's where you got to speak back to that and say, devil, you're a liar. You're, you're full of sin. I'm full of righteousness. Amen? So, that, so condemnation, you speak that to that. But when you feel conviction, don't harden your heart to it. That's why it says don't harden your heart. Encourage one another to, to say today we will live for Jesus. We won't be hardened by sins, deceitfulness. So going quickly back to that first John chapter 3, verse 9, and maybe leave it up there in the ESV, what do we do? We don't practice sin. We practice the presence of God. Come on. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because they're so busy practicing the presence. God's seed remains in them. Sperma. Sperma. There's another Greek word. I know where that one comes from. Oh, Joey, I'll teach you. The sperma. Sperma means seed. As my Greek father-in-law would say, seed. And seed comes in through the word of God. And there it's growing. And if you remember the parable of the sower sowing the seed, as long as you're going in the garden of your heart with the Holy Spirit and de-weeding, God will keep growing that fruit of the Spirit in you. It's when you neglect the garden of your heart and you give in to sin and then it deceives you. And if you remember in the parable of the sower, then it chokes and eventually till it dies. And the backsliders miserable, as we just learned, they're worse off. Any backsliders here can relate to that? I knew Jesus and walked away. Man, I can tell you it was worse. I'm so glad I got to slide back, amen? And so today, what we need to do is say, Jesus, help me to practice keeping your commands. And just a couple practical things. Number one, you have to know them. So read them every day. Study the scriptures. Learn how to ingest the Word of God as a part of your daily life. Number two, journal, write down, or just record in your heart the areas that you're battling with today that have to do with those commands. Be honest. I always tell my three to you because I want you to pray for me. The temptation for me is lust, to, to desire someone other than my wife, to not keep my heart full for her. That's an honest temptation, and I ask the Lord to guard my heart from that, to give me eyes only for her. The second one is my temperament. I can be quick-tempered. I want to be patient as I raise my children. I want to be a pastor who has a heart after God, the fruit of the Spirit. I want to be full on patience and joy. And then lastly, bitterness and envy, jealousy, that whole thing wrapped up in one. Being tempted to look at what my brother has. Oh, this new friend of mine, uh, this, my, my friend of mine just got a new building and it looks so amazing and I'm trying to rejoice, but where's that temptation, right? It comes right there. Well, what about you? Why don't you have a bigger building? How come you're still in that storefront? So those are my three main ones. And so number one, read the word, ingest the word, take it in as your daily bread, let it wash over you. Number two, be honest with yourself. Psalm 139 says, Lord, test me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. And then number three, be renewed in your mind every day. So how do I beat those things? How do I know I'm doing good in those things? Is by renewing my mind, okay? So I have a lust, I then turn that to the renewal. I don't want to live in the lust. I want to practice the presence of God. So I ask, me, I ask God to give me my wife uh, the love that I can have for her forever. So when I'm feeling tempted to think about another person, the renewal of the mind will come and say, the beauty that she is to you, Joe, is irreplaceable. You can't replace your wife with another woman that God has for you. Can I hear an amen to that? And God will renew my mind. I'm serious. And so now I'll look at her, and then, you know, you see these kind of... Uh, things on Instagram, these uh, couples who have been together for 60, 70 years, some of them at, at each other's deathbed, God will start renewing my mind, and I'll go, that's what I want. Because think about it like this. If I give up on her now, I'll never know true love. If I have to upgrade or change, and maybe she'll get the upgrade, really, right, if that happened. But listen, then we never know what it is to love someone at 50, at 51, at 52, at 53. See, then I've given up on what really love is. 
And God wants us to know what it looks like. See, God wants us to love each other till death do we part so that we can say we've loved through all the seasons of life. Some of these men, I hear them, man, because, you know, they're even my age now. And they're like, well, Joe, I'm just attracted to the younger ones. It's not my fault. I'm just attracted to 21-year-olds. I'm not attracted to 40-year-olds. It is your fault because you haven't guarded your heart and let the Lord renew in you the right mind because every 20-year-old you love will one day be a 40-year-old you reject. You haven't really loved her. You've only used her. You've only used her. Because every 20-year-old, if we're looking at it from the man's point of view, wants to be loved as a 40-year-old. And that's what I would say to them. But you want to be loved at 40, don't you? And you got the gray hair and you're swinging low, sweet chariots. Come on up in the chest region. Men know what I'm talking about. You got the love hand. But you want to be loved at your 45, your 50. Your, you want to be loved, but you won't return it. That's a selfish kind of love. And then the things about my temperament, the Lord says, I've been patient with you. And so when I'm about ready to lose it with my kids, you know, if I'm doing the right things and I'm praying to be led not into temptation but delivered from evil, God says, how, how many times did I forgive you, Joe? How many times was I patient with you? And then what do you feel in those moments? The Spirit just renew another level of patience. Let's just be honest. We all reach that end of patience. How many have reached your natural end of patience before? How many tell somebody as you're getting there, I'm reaching the end of my patience with you. You about ready to see you like introducing it. The next one coming and you're not going to like the next version of me. I'm one of those talkers. I'll tell you all the levels I'm reaching, you know. But how many know there's a supernatural patience? There's a spiritual patience. And I felt it, man. And I'm telling you, when I've lost it, I've regretted it every time. Because like the Bible says, you'll know the way of life. If you're a true Christian, you're a sheep, you will know his voice. How many of you have lost that temper and you knew it and you had to repent? There was no excuse. Well, I, could, I, I didn't know. It's just the way I know. No, I'm talking Christians. We know better. I come back and I say, Lord, I'm ashamed. I saw my wife and kids. And then the third thing with that jealousy, all I have to do is count my blessings. Man, all I have to do is just start counting blessings. Once this happened, oh, man, I'm thanking God for this one. Thank God that I have Achilles tendon right here. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. These toes work. Thank you. These hands work. Thank you. Oh, man, I don't even have time to get jealous now anymore. I haven't even started thanking for every eyeball, every blinking eyelid. I haven't thanked him for every hair on my head. Some of them don't have so much. Come on. I haven't thanked him for every bowel movement because I'm not stopped up. I mean, how many know that can be kind of gross? I was watching a show. The girl didn't go to the bathroom for two weeks. They had to take her off the show, and then she had to go to the hospital. Man, it just made me stop and go, thank you, Jesus, for what I just did a few minutes ago. And you got to let it out. I mean, how would I have time to be jealous? Thank you, God, for this brother and this sister and this sister and that beautiful child. How do I have time to be jealous if I go around thanking God for every blessing? That's what it's like. So am I going to practice sin today or practice his presence? That's what I'm going to have to make that decision. And by God's grace, I'll pray for me as I pray for you because I'm choosing his presence. I don't want to go into sin. I don't want to be a child of the devil anymore. I want to live righteous because he made me righteous. I want to stay sealed and, and, and holy, and I want to be a blessing to this world because once we're like this, we're useful to the king, aren't we? We can be poured into others. If you guys remember the old westerns, guys out there, he's in the desert, he's dying. And go, 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 go. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that. They pour in that water and it's kind of dribbling. That's how I feel when I go out preaching on Belmont and Clark. Here's some of what God's been doing in me. Let me just share this with you, and it's dribbling. Oh, I've never tasted that before. Yeah, that's the fresh water of heaven get it but if you're polluted and you're contaminated 
You're not a drink offering, as the Bible says. You're not a drink offering. But you're a drink, uh, you know, a defamation. You're not an offering. You're, you're, you're defiling. But Paul said, no, I'm a drink offering being poured out on your guys' sacrifice. Do you know what you see the homies do pouring out the alcohol? That's actually part of the scriptures. They would take their most uh, precious wines and their alcohol, and they would pour it out over their, their, their offerings. And how many know you marinate some of those meats and some of those alcohols? It tastes even better. Can I hear an amen? And they would pour it out before the Lord. You're supposed to be poured out before Jesus. A drink offering for your family. A drink offering for your community. And when you're doing that, the blessings of the Lord are just flowing through you. Just like when we turn on the faucet, we're not the source, but we got the source flowing through us. Can we be a drink offering for God today? Amen. Would you stand up and bless the Lord with me today? Band and altar workers, would you come? Let's put up that slide. Though I may be sinless, it doesn't mean I live sinless, but every day I walk with Jesus, I will sin less. Hallelujah. I'm sinless in my nature, but I'm not always sinless in my behavior.